0: audio ground school podcast hey 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 welcome to the audio ground school podcast I'm your host Nick Smith how is everybody doing today crickets huh alright I see how it is now it would be nice you know to actually have a a guest on my podcast hmm I might just have something up my sleeve of course as in all part-time pilot fashion, I have to make sure that the guest is going to provide you guys with a lot of value. So, but I might have something up my sleeve, so stay tuned on that. Anyways, today is going to be a great episode. We're going to, you know, the end is near. The light at the end of the tunnel for our ground school is near. We've done, now this is episode 81. We got two sections of the ground school left, section 17 on emergencies and section 18 on night operations. So we're going to start on that emergencies today and talk about kind of emergency landings and what you want maybe want to think about in those situations. Now, huge disclaimer that I have to throw out there. Do not follow exactly what I say. Use this just as informational to get your head to start wrapping around the ideas of these emergencies and emergency procedures and what you kind of want to think about in these emergencies. These are just meant to aid you, not meant to be procedures to follow. The procedures you follow you're going to learn from your flight instructor for your specific airplane from approved, you know, pilot operating handbook and flight manual for your aircraft. Okay, big disclaimer, I'll probably say it a couple more times. Anyways, before we get to that, uh, we have a special testimonial to read and I'm not even going to read it. It's actually going to be someone else, our good friend Callan. Now, sometimes people will, you know, they'll go through our course, they'll uh, pass the written and they'll let us know. And I love, when you guys do that it's great i want to hear the good news i don't want you guys to just lose touch after you go through our course let me know how your flight training is going i want to keep that rapport with you guys and i want to hear how you guys are doing because um i like to hear when you guys do well right even if you do bad <laughs> but no one does bad, right anyways Callen reached out and just said hey i got i passed my fa written, and i just wanted to say thank you your course was was awesome and it, Uh, occasionally I'll be like, hey, would you be willing to, and I don't do it as often as I should, say, hey, would you be willing to do an audio testimonial for us? And Callan was nice enough to do that for us. So let's listen to Callan on that.
1: I wanted to thank Nick from Part-Time Pilot for putting together a great ground school course for private pilots. This is not the first online private pilot ground school I have taken, but it is the one that has best prepared me for my FAA written exam. Unlike my other online ground school, I was able to complete part-time pilot during the week and then pass my written exam on the weekend. It's just crazy. More importantly, Part-Time Pilot provides resources to help student pilots like myself navigate the flight training industry by teaching you what is required every step of the way. As someone who's previously gone through ground school and have been woefully underprepared to continue flight training in the past, I cannot stress enough how valuable taking ownership of your flight training curriculum through the methods that Part-Time Pilot makes available is. Now, as I work through my check ride prep course, I'm looking to bring that same confidence to my check ride. Thanks, Nick.
0: All right, thank you so much, Callen, for doing that and for the kind words and If anyone else you know has a good experience or even a bad experience and wants to leave us a audio testimonial, feel free um. You know, maybe take it easy on the hate mail for my sake. But um, uh, we love to hear feedback. So if it's, you know, I always try and take it, you know, constructively no matter what. But haven't had too many bad reviews, so we're lucky there. All right. So let's do a quick, you know, kind of student question today. Now, this one is super quick, super duper quick, but it's one we always get. They go through our course, they finish the course. And on the last lesson, some people, they don't really read the last kind of lessons or whatever, but we tell you the next steps to take, right? And one of those is to, you know, sign up for the FAA written exam. And we show you where to go, uh, provide the link to the, the FAA works with a testing company called PSI. I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's a very confusing, because if you go to PSI, just like you Google PSI testing, and you go to their main site, you can't figure out how to get, it's almost like their FAA, they have like a different website for the FAA. So you have to Google like FAA PSI and find that exact link, and it can get pretty confusing. So we provide that link for you guys. And then when you're in there, they have some weird acronyms for the tests that you may have not seen before. And they're basically based off categories of aircraft and things like that. And for the certificate you want, right? remember the certificates of airmen and, and categories of aircraft and stuff like that. So they're based off, sorry, they're, I said they're not certificates of aircraft. They're certificates of airmen. And so the one you want, so this is a question we always get, is what tests do I choose to sign up for? That's going to be the Private Pilot Airplane, and the code is PAR. Okay, so PAR, I don't know where the R comes from, but that's the one you want to choose for your written exam. When you want to go for the Private Pilot Airman Certificate, you want the PAR, which is Private Pilot Airplane. All right, so hopefully that helps someone out. And like I said, it was a quick and easy student question today. So let's get right into today's lessons. Okay, so let's get straight into the lessons today. We're going to be in Section 17 on Emergencies in the Online Ground School. So that's your course titled Step 1, Private Pilot Online Ground School Lessons. Highly recommend you join us in the Online Ground School because of all the visuals and bonuses and all that stuff that you get, the quizzes, all that stuff. To marry with this audio is priceless and that's why All our students ace their exams. Am I right? (laughs) No. Okay. So let's get to that on section 17 on emergencies. Lesson one is going to be types of emergency landings. Lesson two is going to be landing spot selection. Again, disclaimer, this is just stuff to get your, your mind thinking about these things. Kind of best practices from the FAA that I've learned over the years. This is not to give you exact procedures. That's going to depend on you know, how your flight instructor teaches you for your exact aircraft and situation. All right, I just had to get that out there. So let's go to Section 17, Lesson 1 on Types of Emergency Landings. The first thing a pilot wants to do in an emergency is accept the fact that it is an emergency. Not accepting this fact because you're either hoping for the best or being overconfident can cost you critical seconds or minutes that you will never get back. During an emergency, it is important that you stick to what you are taught and stay composed. While fear is a great asset to us, it can also lead to our death if we are not able to overcome it while in a real-life emergency. A pilot should not desire to save the airplane if it risks their own safety. The pilot's number one objective should be their own safety. If this means landing in the top of trees where the crash may be cushioned rather than attempting to save the airplane by reaching a runway just over a jagged rocky hill that you may not make it over, then so be it. So you want to basically think about lives, and that includes yourself. So you don't want to crash into a house or people, obviously, right, or a vessel or, or anything like that. You want to avoid that, and then you want to keep yourself. You don't want to think about protecting the aircraft, right? A lot of times people are like, oh, my gosh, if I land here, I'm going to ruin the aircraft. So they try to go land somewhere else, and they end up dying because of it. So that's kind of why we talk about that. Now, types of emergency landings. An emergency approach and landing will be the desired action in both a precautionary emergency landing and a forced emergency landing. A precautionary emergency landing takes place when flight is still possible but inadvisable, such as smoke coming out of the engine, smoke in the cabin, control problems, etc. A precautionary landing is generally not as hazardous as a forced landing because a pilot has more time to avoid terrain, plan the approach, and select a landing site. However, it must be noted that it is easy for pilots to become a little too comfortable and make errors in judgment and technique. A pilot should be aware that multiple situations calling for a precautionary landing can be determined as a cause for a forced landing. So if you you have a fire and your flight controls stop working then that's like two, you know, two different combinations of things creating a forced landing. A forced landing takes place when landing is the only other option opposed to crashing, exploding or burning. A forced landing follows an engine failure, uncontrollable electrical or engine fire, flight surface damage, propeller damage, etc. There are also certain situations where getting to the ground as soon as possible is of the utmost importance. These situations include engine fires, wing fires, propeller damage, etc. Next, you need to decide how you want to get the aircraft to the ground. Do you want to get the aircraft to the ground as soon as possible so you can leave the airplane, for example, in an engine fire? Or do you want to stay in the air for as long as possible to get to a safe landing spot in an engine failure, for example, right? So if your aircraft's on fire, you might want to get to the ground as soon as possible. If your engine goes out, you don't necessarily, I mean, unless a landing spot is right below you, you don't necessarily need to get to the ground as soon as possible, right? You know that your engine's out, so you don't have power, so your time is limited, but you want to make sure that you can glide to the best possible landing spot. So it's a little bit different, right? the answer is to get down as soon as possible, then you'll want to run your emergency descent checklist. The answer is to stay in the air as long as possible, then you'll want to run your engine out checklist. So there's different checklists, right, that come with these. And again, these depend on your flight instructor, your flight school, and most importantly, specific aircraft you're flying in and what's in their approved flight manual and POH. Okay, so that's it. That's kind of just some general things on some things to think about. There's different types of emergencies. Not all emergencies are the same. All right, so we're moving along. A lot of these lessons in the emergency section are short. So now we're on to the next lesson, lesson two of the section on landing spot selection. Again, same disclaimer, these are just things to wrap your head around, get an idea of things you might want to think about in an emergency, but follow the procedures and checklists for your specific aircraft. That is what they are for, okay? So once the type of landing has been determined, you will need to determine where you are going to land. A pilot's choice of emergency landing sites is determined by several factors: the route selected during pre-flight planning. Uh, you want to choose a route near many small airports or private runways, fields, etc. Choose an altitude that allows you time to glide to these runways. So you might want to think about this ahead during your flight planning. Fly at a safe enough altitude to avoid terrain, and you know, should the engine come out and you don't have power, you can glide from that altitude to a safe spot there's enough you know fields or landing spots on your route essentially the other thing is the height above the ground when the emergency occurs this will dictate where you can land uh, i see people fly over the ocean or mountainous areas at very low altitudes probably because they want to save gas and time from climbing or or because it's cool right like top gun buzz the tower type of thing but is it worth it why not climb right after takeoff near your airport to an altitude that allows you a safe glide in the case of an emergency, why not? You know, it might burn a few extra dollars, but better than the alternative, right? And then the last thing is excess airspeed that can be converted into distance or altitude. If an emergency occurs when you are traveling at 130 knots, a quick pitch up can increase your altitude, while also a pitch to best glide speed will initially give you altitude followed by distance. So that's an important thing you'll learn during emergencies is best glide speed you'll want to know the best glide speed for your aircraft. Have that memorized because that is, just like it sounds, that's the speed that will give you the best glide distance. So if you fly that speed, your aircraft will be able to to travel the maximum amount of distance before it reaches the ground. If an airport or private runway is within gliding distance, then this is the obvious choice for landing. In order to determine if this is within gliding distance, a pilot can do a quick estimate using the published glide ratio for their aircraft. Again, that'll be found on the POH or AFM. The glide ratio can be achieved when the aircraft is flying at its best glide speed. Again, that's what we just talked about. For a Cherokee Warrior I fly, the glide speed is 73 knots and the glide ratio is about 10 to 1. Again, it's going to depend on your specific aircraft. There could be modifications to your aircraft. Your wings could be different. You could have different characteristics of your aircraft that change your glide ratio slightly. But kind of a good rule of thumb on like Cessna 172s and Cherokee Warriors is like 10 to 1, okay? But again, check your specific glide ratio for your aircraft. This means that for every 10 feet of horizontal distance, the aircraft will descend one foot. So I have a picture here. It shows the vertical distance, you know, descended from the ground. It has a glide angle and then it has a horizontal distance traveled. The glide ratio is the horizontal distance over the vertical distance. So a glide ratio of 10 to 1 means that when your aircraft is flying at best glide speed, you can travel 10 feet horizontal distance for every one foot you descend. A pilot should keep this sort of information on their kneeboard, I I believe, right? Why not have a quick reference chart in your kneeboard? In the case of emergency, you just flip to that, and you can see you know, how far you can glide. So for me, I've developed a table with different above-ground altitudes, and the distance I can glide, so that I don't have to make any calculations in an emergency situation. All I, f- I have to do is look at the chart. So the chart has glide ratio of 10 to 1, best glide speed 73 knots listed at the top for my aircraft. Again, that's specific to my aircraft. Then it has AGL altitudes and glide distances. So one column of AGL altitudes, one column of glide distances. And that's specific to my glide ratio as long as I'm flying at best glide speed. So I know to pitch to best glide speed, And then if I can just look at my chart, and if I'm 3,000 feet above ground level, right, and how do you figure out what above ground level you are? Well, you know your altimeter tells you MSL altitude. So if you're at, let's say your altimeter says you're at 6,000 feet, and you can look at your sectional chart and see the elevation of the ground below you or the elevation of where you want to land. Let's say you, you find your landing spot, okay, and it's a private runway and the sectional chart shows you the elevation, let's say that's 500 feet, you know that you are 6,000 feet minus 500 feet, you're 5,500 feet above ground level. So you would look on your chart at 5,500 feet AGL, and that says a glide distance of 9.1 nautical miles. So now you can look at your sectional chart and make sure, is that private runway less than 9 nautical miles away? If it is, boom, there's your landing spot selection. The speed at which you descend with no engine power is called your glide speed. Each aircraft manufacturer, so I'm giving a little bit more detail on kind of what I've already talked about, but each aircraft manufacturer publishes a best glide speed for their aircraft that is meant to give the most horizontal glide distance with the least amount of altitude loss. This is why during an engine failure, one of the first and most important things a pilot should do is pitch and trim the aircraft to the best glide speed. As mentioned above, a Cherokee warrior like the one I fly, usually has a glide speed of like 73 knots. When executing an emergency approach to land with no engine power in a single engine airplane, it is important to maintain a constant glide speed because variations in glide speed nullify all attempts at accuracy and judgment of gliding distance and landing spot. So another thing about glide speed is all the other numbers are based off. The glide ratio is based off of it. The quick reference chart that I just told you about that I have is based off of it. So if you don't fly glide speed, it messes up all your estimations of where you can get to. So that's why it's so important to fly at glide speed and trim the aircraft for that glide speed. What if there is no airport or runway within gliding distance? The next thing a pilot should look for is a flat field or open area, no cars or people or aircraft or houses. If no flat fields or open areas are within glide distance either, then a pilot needs to make a decision on which surrounding terrain will best absorb energy during a forced landing. And the next thing to think about could be large parking lots, roads, or other paved surfaces. Those would be the next kind of logical things, like anything paved with enough distance to maybe to come to a stop, right? Uh so usually you'll see, you know, roads. That's that's usually uh or parking lots. But if you're not near roads or parking lots, then that could be then you move on to the next thing on the checklist. What is the next best thing, right? A decision on the general area of landing should be made as soon as possible. If at a high altitude, it may be difficult to judge the best landing spot for energy absorption. However, a pilot can tell the difference between the colors on the ground and stay clear of brown or gray or white toned colors usually associated with rocks and mountainous areas. So if you're up high and you can't really, you know, tell you can kind of judge, you know, mountainous area by the color if you're too high to see features. So that's just kind of a tip there. And instead point their aircraft towards tones of green or yellow, usually associated with like shrubs and grass, right? So that would be the next ideal thing. So obviously a grassy field, right, with short grass. And then maybe the next best thing would be like a grassy field with long grass. And then the next best thing would be a field with shrubs, bushes, but not trees, right? And then if still none, if there's just like forest trees, then, you know, we'll get to that. Let's see here. Um, Once the aircraft gets lower and ground visibility improves, a pilot can better select the exact landing spot, looking for grass or dirt fields, or flat areas with brush or crops. Tall trees should be avoided unless they are the pilot's only option. A river or creek may be an inviting alternative to more rugged terrain. In a scenario where a tree landing is necessary, a pilot should remember the following. Okay, so now, These are just tips for like worst, uh, one of the worst case scenarios, right? You're just over a forest or something and it's only tall, big trees. Uh, Aim for low, closely spaced trees with wide areas of dense branches. Use a normal landing configuration, which includes flaps, gear. Minimize ground speed on touchdown. So, you know, fly into the wind, use full flaps. You want to, the key here is to minimize the amount of energy that you have when you impact something okay so if you know you're going to impact something you want to minimize the amount of speed and velocity and energy at which that happens and then try to gradually slow slow yourself down Uh, make contact with trees at minimum indicated airspeed but not at a stall stalling above the trees can cause the nose and aircraft to drop through the trees into the ground and you want the trees to absorb energy and reduce your speed first so attempt to hang the airplane in the trees by the wings with a nose high altitude First contact with the trees should be bottom of the fuselage or tail with the, and the wings with the tops of the trees. Avoid contact with the lower heavier trunks. Attempt to make initial contact uh, symmetrically across the wings and bottom fuselage so you don't hit one wing and it spins you off. And then if collision with a heavy tree trunk is inevitable, it is best to contact the wings with the trunks first, ideally both wings hitting the trunks of two trees at the same time. So those are just some crazy things to think about in a worst-case scenario. Again, do not use these exact procedures. Talk these over with your flight instructor for your specific aircraft if you want to do that. Now, water landings, if executed correctly, can be far less violent than a tree landing or landing on rough terrain. During a water landing, a pilot should attempt to keep their eyes far ahead to avoid illusions with large expanses of water. So that's something that can come into play, too, is illusions when you're landing somewhere that you're not used to you know, that's other than a runway. A water landing should be made with a slightly higher nose attitude than a normal landing, and the pilot should attempt to have the tail or fixed, you know, we're thinking of fixed gear here, fixed main rear gear, touch the water first and drag the aircraft down. So you kind of, in a water landing, the best way, the way the FAA recommends is kind of just have the rear gear just sort of gently touch the aircraft and kind of drag you down you know, ideally it takes a lot of precision and it's, it's very difficult. Don't make these things seem the fact that it's possible. Be like, have you choose to land on water? Cause it's very, very extremely, extremely dangerous. This is if you had no other option, what you would do, right? So, and if the aircraft has retractable gear, then the gear should be kept up unless otherwise stated in the POH or AFM. So again, that might be, in your approved flight manual what to do if you have a retractable gear or how to perform a water landing. Like all these, please take the advice of your, you know the, the manufacturer for your specific aircraft. If done correctly, the tail and main gear will drag the aircraft to a halt and the wings and cabin will be undamaged and remain floating. That's the goal, right? To slowly come down and have the tail kind of drag you to slow enough so that when you the rest of the aircraft hits the water it's not a high enough impact that it rips a fuselage apart, causes you to fly out the windshield or anything like that, right? That's the goal, to, to have either the tops of trees or, or water kind of slow you down before the center of mass of your aircraft hits the water or trees. Landing in snow should be executed just the same as landing in water. That's what the FAA recommends. Okay, so those are just some interesting things to think about. Hopefully you never have to. But you guys know me, if you guys have been listening to me, I want to think of all possible scenarios, any possible little thing that can maybe come in handy, even if it improves my chances of survival by only 0.01%, right? I'm going to take, I'm going to learn that. I'm going to know that. I'm going to understand that so that maybe just in that off chance and I get in that scenario, that's, you know, I know what to do. And again, last time I'm going to say this disclaimer, these are just food for thought. Thanks to you know, help aid you. Maybe ask questions to your flight instructor if that applies to your aircraft. Please don't take about anything that I said in this lesson or the rest of the lessons on emergencies as the if so facto uh, procedure that you have to follow. That's going to be determined by the aircraft manufacturer, your specific aircraft configuration, and how your flight instructor wants you to do that and teaches you how to do that. So, all right. So kind of a short one today, but uh, that's it. That's all we have today. We're going to continue on with emergencies. So the next few lessons we have, we're going to talk about electrical failures, gyro failures, radio failures, engine fire, electrical fire, and engine failure directly after liftoff. Sometimes that could happen, and that is one of the most dangerous situations, so we want to think specifically about that. All right, everybody, thank you for listening. As always, safe flights, and enjoy yourselves, and I'll talk to you next week. hey guys it's nick i want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there you might be a student pilot that is you know wondering what to do next how to get started or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck you're in a rut and you're looking for a change something to help get you out of that hurdle from my own experience in flight training after Three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times. And then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant, because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations fly a plane for the first time, everything's great and dandy. Once you get into, you know, bad weather flying or flying at heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight, things get a little more advanced. And when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts, you're gonna hit a wall. You're gonna start to get behind the aircraft when this happens if you have a good flight instructor they're going to stop you and they're going to say okay we need to do one-on-one ground lessons and now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you but instead fifty sixty seventy dollars an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know and at, and the worst part is is you're not flying with them so the flight training that you gained, the currency the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons and what happens to most student pilots is they Here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said, I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. When I say modern day student pilot, I just say modern day part-time student pilot, because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24/7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job, or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA check ride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts. The way we explain things in plain written English and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.